Good morning, everybody, for me as well. What's it like to have a supernatural encounter? What does it feel like to have a supernatural encounter? What comes to mind when you think about that? Uh, I remember someone once saying, we were having this time of open testimonies in our church back in the day. And someone said, when you feel your heart beating extra fast, and maybe like the hairs on the back of your head sticking out or neck sticking out, you know, that's what it feels like when the Spirit is moving in your life and you're having a supernatural encounter. I don't necessarily agree with that as the only definition. We're coming here today to listen to God's Word. My sincere hope is that everyone that is here today is hoping for a supernatural encounter where they hear God speaking to them. Whether or not the hair on the back of your neck stands up or your heart starts to beat an extra couple of beats per minute, my sincere hope is that you'll walk out here today and God would have used His Word to speak to you, to correct you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to rebuke you if necessary, whatever the case may be. Rather than waiting for the hair on the back of your neck to stand up, why don't you just settle on saying, I want to hear what you have to say, Lord God. Next Sunday morning, as is always the case on the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having our next death service. I think it's absolutely awesome that we've been able to step into the zone and to start ministering to the deaf community. It's a community that is so often excluded from so many aspects of life because of our struggles to communicate with them. But I want to just take two minutes of this service to teach us how to greet a deaf person. All right? Um, I think it would be fantastic to be a congregation that is so much better at welcoming this part of our church family into our home in a way that's not simply settling for an us and them scenario, as we so often do with people that are not like us, to break that, that us and them scenario down. So just four little phrases that, I want, that, I, that, that, that might open you up to some epic moments of Love and acceptance in our church. Right. So I'm going to show you what to do, and you're going to mirror it back to me. Is that okay? Nothing simple. You just look at me. You don't have to look at the people around you. That'll get awkward. Just look at me and mirror what I'm doing. So firstly, to say hello to a deaf person, you just do that. Hello. All right. Hello. How are you? Doing well so far. Next one. Welcome to church. Put your hands up. Tuck your thumbs in. Close your hand. Welcome. I think that's an epic picture of welcome. Here's the individual. Individual gets encumbered by the people around him. Welcome to our church. Welcome to our church. Okay. Hello. How are you? Welcome. Church. And then you want to say enjoy church because it mustn't be boring. So now we do the billabong sign. That's how I remember it. Billabong sign. Billabong. 
been ill in Dave Langley's Billabong Sound, and all you do is it's going to be awkward because your elbows might touch the person next to you. You basically do this to your armpit. Enjoy. Do it. There. Enjoy. Okay, so let's do it one more time. Hello. How are you? Welcome to church. Enjoy church. All right, well done, guys. That's awesome. So John's not here today. He's going to be back in the office on Tuesday. He's been on holiday. He's agreed that there's a free cappuccino for anybody that uses at least three of those signs with our deaf community next Sunday morning. First service. Free cappuccino. But the proviso, and Sean doesn't know about that, but John said it to me, okay? The proviso is that you do have eye contact with the deaf person when that happens. I saw lawyers in our congregation getting the little loophole. You have to have eye contact, Okay. Three signs like that, give it to the deaf person, and let's break down some of those barriers. Interesting little fact. During the last deaf service, what happened was there was a lady in our church that was having a physical problem, something along the lines of a minor stroke. And the lady that was signing, a lady named Nikki, basically signed to two doctors in the deaf community to go back there and look after the lady. And without even making an announcement up front here, this deaf community massively blessed us in our church by looking after that lady very effectively. Um, great moment. You know, I confess before our church started ministering to this community that I've had very little exposure of any kind to deaf people or to sign language. Minimal encounter. In fact, my one memory of deaf people and sign language prior to the start of our deaf service has to do with that gentleman that managed to con himself into the signing position at Mandela's funeral, if you remember that moment. If you've seen or remember that video, I think you'll all agree with me that he, that guy managed to steal something from all of us that day, in that moment, something very precious in that very significant moment in our, in our country's history. It's quite cringeworthy watching it again, but if you haven't seen that moment, why don't you just take a few seconds to look at the screen. This is an amazing thing. As I'm sure you know, there was a big memorial service for the great Nelson Mandela yesterday in South Africa. Many prominent leaders from around the world, including President Obama, showed up to pay tribute. And as is often the case with a big event, they had a sign language interpreter on hand to translate for the hearing impaired. And the only problem was the movements the guy who was translating was making with his hands made no sense. Even if you don't know sign language, if you watch this, you can tell he only has like three or four moves that he repeats over and over here. Okay, that's, it. that's him. And you see, he looks like a backup dancer for a singer we cannot see or hear. Almost immediately, viewers who actually do know sign language started calling him out online. And then video popped up today of the guy interpreting or doing whatever it was he was doing at other events, too. So he's done this before. And I would love to know what this guy's story is. I mean, was this a, a prank? Is he a scam artist? Is he just very, very bad at his job? <laughs> so we brought a, in a real sign language interpreter. Justin, where's Justin? Justin, come on in here. This is... 
Justin. How long have you been? Um, how long have you been a sign language interpreter? No, five years. For five years, and you've done this for us at some of our concerts outside. Yeah, Hanson were here. I did it for Hanson. Oh yeah. yeah. Does Hanson have an inordinate number of hearing impaired fans? Just one. Just one. Oh. And is that a compliment for a band? Um. Yes, actually, it is. No, it is not. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's watch this guy and tell us what he seems to be signing, if anything at all, okay? Sure. All right, we'll, I'll be quiet. You roll it. I support basic salutations here, salutations. Inside, joining in this week's cigarette. Inside, to prove, and on and on, to support... I would please to say, from me to you, <laughs> talking to you so far. Is, is he even attempting to make sense? Um, it's complete gibberish. And, okay, all right. Well, we complete gibberish. That's very sad stuff, though, isn't it? Very sad. I think that blows my mind the most is how he does his sign language so confidently, even though he knows it's, it's just... Not much more than just a bunch of lies. Now the truth is, sign language is not simply for the deaf community. All of us are constantly trying to read the signs that the world is conveying to us. So if you're a parent, you certainly find yourself trying to read the signs about the well-being of your children. If you're feeling a little ill, your mind goes into overdrive trying to read the signs that your body is sending you. If you're an adult, almost without doubt, there are moments where you catch yourself reading the signs that speak of your financial stability. If you're interested in someone of the opposite sex, you will, and I remember these days, you'll interrogate almost to death every single little sign that that person sends your way. Yes, I'm so glad I'm past that stage. If you're an older adult, and for definition's sake, I'd classify an older adult as 45 years or older, doesn't mean you're a bully yet, just an older adult. If you're an older adult, your body will increasingly send you a very depressing list of signs that will rub your nose again and again in the fact that you're not as young as you used to be. Or at least that's what my friends told me how it happens. <laughs> In a, in, a, in a similar way, folk, in a, simi a similar way, as, as deeply spiritual beings, we're also constantly on the lookout for signs in this world and in this universe of ours that may give us a glimpse into the deeper truths of our existence. You know, what are we here for? Who or what is God actually like? And so we find a wife, for instance, after years of looking, and we use that moment to interpret our God in one way or another. Our country goes through a natural disaster or even a man-made disaster. Possibly we receive some much-needed rain. And again, we interpret our God through that kind of experience. Maybe a child is born into our family or we lose a loved one. Same response. We ask ourselves this question, what does this moment, what does the sign say about our God? All of us on one level or another never stop sending out our feelers as we desperately pursue the true meanings of our world through a million signs that we encounter on a daily basis. It's a never-ending treasure hunt. Now, we get busy going through the Gospel of John. John started, John Ben started the Gospel of John last week. 
Um, and one of the unique elements of this gospel that we have to wrap our minds around if we're ever going to understand this gospel is the use of the word psalm. And the use of the ideas of signs in this gospel. We encounter it much more often than any other book of the Bible. And so it is significant. For instance, some experts say that the book can be divided into four parts. Obviously, there's the prologue, chapter 1. There's the epilogue, chapter 21. And then there's two other sections. The one section, the first section of those two, is called the Book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 19, through to chapter 12, verse 50. It's the largest portion of the, of the Gospel of John. Fifteen different occasions in that portion of Scripture, the word sign is used over and over and over again. So there must be something significant happening here. Even in the chapters that I'll be looking to, at today, chapter 2, 3, and 4, that word sign is used on five different occasions. I think it's impossible to get to grips with what the author of John is saying with a heart unless we are able to navigate the sign language that is, pe- that is peppered throughout the Gospel of John. So let's go there now. Let's learn in, in some senses some more sign language this morning, shall we? And there are four moments in those three chapters that I want to touch on. And the first one is where Jesus changes water to wine. John chapter 2, verse 1 through to 12. A very familiar passage. Somehow every non-church person in the world knows the story. And let's be honest, some church people have also memorized it for one reason only. Look out for those that laugh the loudest. It's without a doubt a guilty laugh. But if you know the story, Jesus arrives at a wedding with his mom, Way too early in the proceedings, the wine runs out. Jesus instructs the waiters to fill up some massive jars of water, and miraculously the water turns into wine, and surprisingly it's the best wine of the whole event. And so the party can legitimately go on. Chapter 2, verse 11, right towards the end of this little story, says about this story, says that this was the first of the signs, there's the word, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So what is the sign that's implicit in the story? Is it that God is for alcohol? I mean, that's how this passage is used more often than not. But I really don't think that that's the heart of the passage. I think it's simple. The nature of the sign, I think that the nature of the sign has to do with the fact that that the wine was replenished. And at the end of the day, there was a surprising, excessive, and satisfying abundance because of Christ's presence. I believe that that is the kernel of truth that we need to note in in this moment. Bottom line, when moments are experienced with Christ, with Him as part of the party, with Him as part of the struggle, with Him as part of our lives, our work lives, our parenting lives, when moments are experienced with Christ, we will find a surprising, excessive, and satisfying abundance in life because that is the kind of Christ we serve. Something of an echo of this truth in another passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, 
the best of meals, the finest wines, rich, excessive abundance for those that are followers of Christ. Folk, we have in our congregation recovering alcoholics, there's a number, and, and drug addicts, who point at Christ as the one that has filled their lives beyond what any drink was able to do for them. We have in our congregation people that have tasted that bitter sweetness of an extramarital affair. But who now admit that there's nothing that compares to the faithfulness and fullness of a marriage that is bled and led by, blessed and led by God, lived in a way with Christ as the center of that marriage. Nothing like that. We have in our congregation those that have battled with immense loss of a loved one or of a, of a dream that, is, that they've always longed for, of health that they used to enjoy, but to add that nothing brings them more comfort or purpose in these difficult moments than the fact that God is still very present in their lives. Despite the circumstances, there's an abundance an excessive abundance that can be found in a relationship with Christ. Like the first sign of this gospel is simply a reminder that where Christ is, we will find a quality of life that is surprisingly abundant, no matter the circumstances. The glory of the God we worship is that His generosity and blessings penetrate any circumstance that life will throw at us. That is the first sign. Second sign happened in the Jewish temple. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 25. Again, a fairly well-known passage. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. Disturbingly, he finds a bunch of people selling all kinds of animals. Grabs a cord, cord chases them out. And in the process, he overturns the money collector's table. And you can imagine the, the, the chaos that must have reigned after that. You know, the pandemonium. And he tells everyone to stop turning my father's house into a market. Naturally, this riles the people that were making the money there, and they ask this question. Listen to the wording. What sign, there's the word again, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus' reply is loaded. He says, destroy this temple. Remember, he's standing in the premises of this temple. It's like standing in this church. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, despite the fact that everyone that was listening knew that that temple took 40 years to build. Now, the crazy thing about that answer is, I don't think anyone, anyone in that moment except Jesus understood what his reply meant. In fact, John says as much. Verse 22 of that passage, only after Jesus says, only after Jesus was raised from the dead did the disciples go back to this moment to fully get what he was speaking about. It was a bit of a, a bit of a confusing reply. So again, we're left with the question: what was the sign that Jesus presented to us to interpret? Well, he points at the temple. The temple was understood to be the place where God and mankind met. 
the place where heaven and earth introduces themselves to each other. And in one moment, in what he says in that moment, he reinvents that place by saying, in effect, I am now the one that introduces God to man. The temple is now of a bygone era. Folks, the meeting place for us and God is not church. It's not in a life group. It's not in the beauty of nature. It's not in good or bad times. It's not circumstantial. The meeting place with God is wherever and whenever we encounter Jesus. That's what it boils down to. The meeting space with the mighty is in a person. It's not a venue. And that is the sign that he uses to explain his moment. That is the truth that is being highlighted here. When we go to church, that is one thing. When we go to meet Jesus, that is a completely different thing. If only we were all in the habit of preparing for this meeting with that understanding that everything fails unless we meet Jesus here. But not only here in every other place that we exist in. Third word, mention of the word sign happens in the middle of a night in a secret meeting between Jesus and a Pharisee. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 20. In fact, the mentioning of the word sign is what sets up this whole meaning. It's the spark that causes, causes this meeting to happen. Listen to this. Nicodemus, the name of the Pharisee, actually preached about him a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Nicodemus starts off his conversation by saying, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one could perform the signs. There's the word again. No one can perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. So let's note that this is a conversation more accurately about signs, rather than an encounter with the sign. A little bit different. Not the same as the first two occasions. It's a conversation about signs. The signs that Jesus has been performing have been noted by this bloke. They've been valued. They've been appreciated. In fact, in such a way that now we have a guy that is trying to respond to them correctly. And that is so key, isn't it? I mean, respect to this guy that says, something massive is happening here. I've seen the signs. Something massive is happening here. Best I handle it well. Best I respond properly to what I'm witnessing from God. Contrast his response to those that encounter massive moments with God and that rather sidestep the moment by explaining them away as fast as possible or they diminish the moment by just getting caught up with the rush and craziness of normal living. There's a contract that needs to be signed. Not Nicodemus. He hits the pause button. He sets up a moment with Jesus. And asks with genuine interest, how can I best respond to these signs that you're placing in front of me and our community? Jesus' response is like a sledgehammer. Absolutely nothing subtle about it. He says, you must be born again. These signs are not just meant for you to cosmetically adjust your life, change a few fairly meaningless things on the outside or on the periphery of your lives. 
No, His call is for us to be open, to be changed at our core. To fundamentally align with who our God is and what He desires for our life. To be open to change everything that makes us us. Our character, our values, our perspectives, our habits, our desires. Everything is put before God for His access, access to Him. Look, when handled well, when handled well, these signs that God gives us will lead us to be born again. Our old life will slowly but surely, sometimes dramatically, but our old life will pass away. And a new life will become the reality in which we live. Signs from God are not meant to leave us untouched and unchanged. They mean to search us and lead us towards the moment of being born again. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Last of the signs that we'll be looking at today brings us to the story of an an official son that is healed, chapter 4, verse 43 to 54. I mean, one of the toughest moments I'm sure everyone can know or imagine is when any parent will experience is, is when you see your child writhing in agony. You can imagine that must have been even more difficult in a day and age where society just didn't have answers to serious illness. Ambulances, anesthetics, sterilized hospital wards were yet to be imagined. And this is the situation that confronts Jesus one day when a desperate dad, a dad that was willing to beg, the passage says, a dad that is willing to beg, dads are, are normally like, you know, they try to be like dignified and all the rest of it. This guy was willing to beg for his kid. He stands before Jesus and says, come heal my son, he's close to death. Jesus' reply again is a little strange. Listen to what he says. He says, unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. Is that an appropriate response to a dad that's begging for his son's health? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's Jesus saying there? Is Jesus rebuking this desperate dad for wanting signs and wonders? Is that all you want from me? A miracle? Is he scolding the crowds? In fact, it's probably more accurately the crowds because the you is plural. Is he scolding the crowds that were listening in on the conversation because all they want is a cool show of power? There's lots of churches that are formed around those kinds of people. They just want a cool show of power. Or, in those words is Jesus simply pointing out something that we all need to know about how faith works. That a part of faith is the need we have to encounter signs and wonders before we believe. I confess, I don't know, I don't have a definitive answer on how to understand that one line from Jesus, what his tone was. But I reckon that at very least we can say that it is true that unless we receive signs from God, that unless at times we are genuinely left amazed at the works of God, wonderfulled, unless these things, encounters with God happen, our faith will not grow. 
Folks, signs and wonders from the Lord, and I'm not talking about the false signs that man tries to manufacture at times. Signs and wonders from the Lord, incredible coincidences, timely words to us. People, you know, those kinds of things will inevitably stretch and deepen our worship for the Lord. So having said that, we go now and we see see this happening now in action. Jesus turns to the dad and he says, go, your son will will live. He basically grants the sign or, the, he, or, or, or the, the wonder. On the way home, he meets a servant that tells him his son is up and about. And sure enough, the story is concluded with the words, he and his whole household believed. The sign or the wonder resulted in a greater belief. The massive power Jesus showed in healing the son from a distant pointed to a reality that was way beyond the dad's understanding. It was, in fact, a signpost that clearly pointed to an immense God. It explained an immense God, a God that deserves our worship and our belief. And that's what the dad ended up giving. That's the role of signs in our lives. But allow me to wrap up the sermon by pointing out again that all of us are constantly latching onto a range of signs that we allow to define what our God looks like. We latch on to defining moments in our lives. The worldview we received, possibly at varsity, the hypocrite we encountered at church, the, the sense of beauty and freshness we encountered in the burg. These are often the signs that once and for always will build an image of God for us. Truthfully, though, don't we run the risk of being just like that guy at Mandela's funeral by doing this? We run the risk of creating a sign language that has some splatters of truth to it, but is also very often confusing and bewildering, if not completely false. And yet we claim it to be true with, with conviction and bluster anyway. Those signs that we find for ourselves are sometimes just telling a fairy tale. Look, we have to understand that as we grapple with the all-important idea of who God is, we need to remember that chapter 1 verse 18 of John says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made Him known. Jesus alone is able to introduce us to the real picture of who God is, the reality He effectively gives us an alternate but definitive set of sign language. A sign language that makes sense and that explains our life and explains God for who He is. The signpost Jesus has left in this gospel will accurately build and faithfully lead us to a picture of God that we can trust with our lives. Make no mistake that 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 first construction that we build is useful. It's personal. At times it will probe our faith. I guess it also shows the fingerprints of God in in our personal life. That first construct of God. But that second construct, the image from God, the one that Christ gives us, is next level. It's crucial. It educates us as followers of who God is. It grants us the security in a life that this world cannot destroy, despite what happens in our country. 
It keeps God beyond our reach where He belongs in many senses. Or to put it another way, it humbles us before our God. It feeds our soul. It feeds our faith. And above all else, it will lead us to worship Him as we see God for who He truly is. Tell me, which list will you allow you to coach you the most? And your picture of God the most? Truth is, eternal life. That quality of life that can only be found in God, that eternal life, is only when we use that second list as the authoritative list. When that list fills our heart and mind and life with beautiful, true, humbling pictures of God, then we will understand the nature and quality of what eternal life truly is.